Well, we are continuing this morning with our study of the book of Acts. Uh, today we are focusing on Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Uh, Acts 17 is in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, after taking time to encourage the churches from the first missionary journey, the Lord very specifically led Paul and his mission team to go into Europe. So they crossed the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. They first went to the city of Philippi, and after that they went to Thessalonica, and then to Berea. In Philippi, they started by going to a prayer group that met outside the city by the river. But in Thessalonica and Berea, both had synagogues, so that's where they started their ministry in those cities. One thing that was true in every city is that people got very upset. Many believed, many got upset with what Paul and Silas uh, were sharing when they spoke of Christ. In Philippi, they were beaten, put into prison, and then begged to leave. In Thessalonica, after many believed, the leaders of the synagogue led an uprising against them. And once again, Paul and Silas were forced to leave that city. Well, Berea started off differently. Uh, they are described as being more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. And we're told they received the word with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether the things Paul and Silas said were really there in, those, in, in the scriptures. And many of them ended up believing that Jesus was truly the Christ. But the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica got word that Paul and Silas were now in Berea, and they traveled 45 miles to stir up crowds of people against Paul and Silas there in Berea. We read in Acts 17, 14 that the brothers in Berea helped Paul leave that city and escorted him to Athens. When he got to Athens, he sent word back to Berea for Silas and Timothy to meet him there <coughs> as soon as they could. So in Acts 17, 16 to 34, we see that Paul is now in Athens, Greece. While he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him, he begins to interact with the people of Athens. He begins, as usual, by speaking with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who attended the synagogue. But Luke gives most of his attention to Paul's interaction with the Greek philosophers. And these verses give us our most extensive example of how Paul spoke with Gentiles. One of the things that comes up several times is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're going to use our time on this Resurrection Sunday to focus on the resurrection. Next week, we're going to come back to the same passage, and we're going to talk about what we can learn from, from how Paul approached these Greek philosophers who did not have understanding of the Old Testament scriptures like the Jews did. There's a lot we can learn from him, but we're going to come back to that part of it next week. So, we read uh, Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue <coughs> with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what should this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. 
for you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, an Arapagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now before we get to the comments specifically about the resurrection, we need to take note of our first point, and that's this. Paul was greatly troubled at the idolatry he saw displayed in Athens, but the people he spoke with rejected him and his message as being strange. First thing we read about Paul in Athens in verse 16 is the fact that his spirit was provoked within him. He saw that there were this city was just filled with idols. Athens really had been the foremost city among all the Greek states in the preceding centuries. The Romans conquered Athens in 146 B.C., but they had allowed the city to carry on with those institutions that they already had. So there were things like that. So this included things like uh, sculptures, uh, literature, oratory, philosophies. I mean, Athens was just unsurpassed in those areas. It was a great city of learning. Some have compared it to a great university city. The focus on various philosophies and religious ideas meant that there were an abundance of idols that could be seen throughout the city. They were open to just about anything and enjoyed the challenge of debating and discussing various belief systems. So this city full of idols greatly agitated Paul in a spiritual way. Why would it affect him like that? Well, Paul abhorred idols because he loved and was deeply committed to the one true God. First commandment was not just a piece of information that he was aware of, it captured his heart. You shall have no other gods before me. So this meant that it was required of every human being that they know and acknowledge God to be the one true God. It requires worshiping and glorifying him with our lives. And it means that we are deeply affected when we see our Lord denied and rejected. 
Of course, Paul was also deeply committed to the second commandment. You should not make for yourself any carved image or any other likeness for the purpose of worship. So when he saw these idols all over the city, he was deeply offended on behalf of the Lord. He was zealous for the Lord and for true worship. Therefore, he despised this false and sinful worship of idols. As I thought about this verse, I was wondering about the idols that Paul might take notice of in our city or in our culture. Obviously, they wouldn't look like the idols uh, in Athens. Instead, it might be things related to money, possessions, houses, cars, so forth, politics, things like clothes, things like sports, uh, even people that we put on too high of a pedestal, all the things that are available to us through uh, computers, phones, TVs. If I'm going to get upset about the idols in our culture, though, I first have to consider closely the idols in my own life. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a book on uh, dealing with idolatry, and she speaks of idolatry as undivided love for the Lord gone wrong. Undivided love gone wrong. She said, idolatry lies at the heart of every besetting sin that we deal with. So, yes, we live in a city of idols, full of idols. But we also have to recognize that we are not exempt from that temptation, that inclination toward idolatry. The sins and temptations that we struggle with on a regular basis are likely connected with idolatry in some way. Well, out of this great burden, Paul began to speak to people who gathered in the marketplace of Athens. We see in verse 18 that he spoke with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were there. The Epicureans were named after a man named Epicurus, He died in 270 B.C. He taught that the highest good and the greatest end of our life was was serene enjoyment. Many of his followers interpreted that as a pursuit of pleasure. They actually believed that there were many gods. The Epicureans did. Stoics were founded by Zeno, uh, Z-E-N-O, who was a contemporary of Epicurus. They were known as the philosophers of the porch, They would speak from the Stoa porch. That's where the name Stoics came from. And they spoke of the supremacy of what was morally good. They acknowledged a supreme God, but were basically pantheistic. So these philosophers were not at all impressed by what Paul had to say. In verse 18, we see they called him an idle babbler. The word is literally seed picker. It was applied to people who would pick up scraps of information from others and present it as if it were their own. So they're accusing Paul of being an ignorant, religious charlatan. They not only rejected Paul, they rejected his teaching. He is called a proclaimer of strange deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 19, it's called a new teaching. And verse 20, it's referred to as strange things. Well, Paul is brought to the Areopagus, a place where judicial matters were considered. This was not a criminal kind of hearing like he had been, or proceeding like he had been involved with before. This is really more of a, maybe curiosity, a serious kind of a desire to want to know, in some degree at least, what this new teaching was about. 
Well, at the end of this address, we see in verse 32 that after he mentioned the resurrection, once again, many of them sneered at these things. So, Paul was greatly troubled at the idolatry he saw in Athens. He was moved to address those sinful teachings, sinful ideas, but he and his teaching were rejected as being strange. Well, what was it that was so offensive to these philosophers? It was the resurrection. That's what was so offensive to them. So let's take some time to consider this. Point two, Paul was speaking of the facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we need to consider what exactly would be involved in speaking of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, especially to people who knew basically nothing about him. Well, we can sum it up, I think, in three very basic truths. First, Jesus Christ was really and truly God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Now, in order for Jesus to be resurrected, of course, he had to die. In order to die, he had to be born and be alive. So we start with the fact that Jesus Christ was born. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and became man. He took on himself a true human body. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and, of course, was born. Most people really would not challenge the fact that Jesus Christ was born and lived as a man in history. Many would doubt whether he was, in fact, the Son of God. Some would doubt whether he had a genuine human body or not, but he did. I mean, he was born. He grew up from a baby to adulthood. He ate. He drank. He got tired. He slept. Those are all things that are associated with and evidence of the fact that he was, in fact, really and truly God in the flesh. Well, Paul was clearly speaking of Jesus to these philosophers so that his existence as a man in the flesh would have to be spoken of in some way. Well, next we see that Jesus really and truly died and was buried. Again, as Christians, these are things that we readily believe to be true. The suffering and death of Christ, of course, is a major part of what we are thinking of when we uh, consider Passion Week, this Easter week. The scriptures speak to us of how Judas betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders on Thursday evening after the uh, Passover. We read of how he was lied about. We read about how his physical suffering began as he would be struck by someone who just did not like his answer. We read about how he was taken to Pilate, how he was brutally scourged. Earlier today, we read the passages from in Matthew, and we saw how Pilate gave him over to be crucified. The soldiers put a scarlet robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head and then mocked him as the king of the Jews. He was beaten with a reed on the head and then led away to be crucified. Well, as he hung on the cross, people hurled verbal abuse at him. The chief priests and the scribes themselves mocked him. The Lord caused darkness to fall over the land. And then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He was truly dead. Later in the afternoon, on Friday, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked to bury Jesus' body. Pilate confirmed with the centurions that he was actually dead and then gave permission to bury Jesus. Of course, the Jewish leaders wanted to make sure that his, <coughs> that his grave was secure. So a seal was placed on the stone in front of the tomb and a detail of soldiers assigned to guard the tomb. So Jesus the Son of God in the flesh, the Christ, 
really and truly died and was buried. Those days, of course, lead up to the third fact, which is Jesus Christ really and truly rose from the dead. Let me read again the passage from Matthew 28 that we looked at earlier about this resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So this really and truly happened. On the third day after being placed in the tomb, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I want to read how Charles Spurgeon described this, this resurrection um, that we're celebrating this morning. This is from a sermon that he preached in 1882. He says, By the power of God, by his own power, by the Father's power, by the power of the Spirit, for it's attributed to each of these in turn. Before the Son had risen, his dead body was quickened. The silent heart began again to beat. And through the stagnant canals of the veins, the life flood began to circulate. The soul of the Redeemer again took possession of the body, and it lived once more. There he was within the sepulcher, as truly living as to all parts of him as he had ever been. He literally and truly in a material body came forth from the tomb to live among men until the hour of his ascension into heaven. This is the truth that is still to be taught. Refine it who may, spiritualize it who dare. This is the historical fact that the apostles witnessed. This is the truth for which the confessors bled and died, this is the doctrine that is the keystone of the arch of Christianity, and they that hold it not have cast aside the essential truth of God. How can they hope for salvation for their souls if they do not believe the Lord is risen indeed? These are truths that Paul was sharing with the philosophers in Athens. They rejected Paul. They rejected what he was teaching them. They called it a strange doctrine. Let's consider that part of it next. The resurrection is a strange doctrine for many people. We've already noted that multiple times the philosophers of Athens spoke of Paul's teachings regarding the resurrection as being something strange. Well, let's think about why they would say that. First, materialist, materialist, it's that blank, who believe this life is all there is, Think of the resurrection as a strange and foolish doctrine. So a materialist is one who would believe that this material world is all that actually exists. 
there is a scientific explanation for everything. The Epicureans who spoke with Paul would loosely fit into this category. They said that whatever gods there were, they make no difference to man and do not intervene in any way in his affairs or in the affairs of the world. They believe that the universe consists of atoms of matter that are eternal. And it was in the falling of these atoms through space in particular configurations that resulted in the world and the universe that we live in. There's no such thing as immortality. According to them, when a person dies, they are dead, gone. No such thing as life after death. They also insisted because of this, there was no reason to fear death. So from this vantage point, you can understand why they considered the teaching of resurrection to be a strange doctrine. There was no place in their worldview for someone rising from the dead. There was no place in their worldview for considering that there would be life after death in any form. They would go for the gusto in this world, and then it was over. Now, there's many in our day who think the same thing. They would use the theory of evolution as an explanation for how the universe came into being. All that is in this world is the material. There is nothing supernatural. Most would say there's no need for any belief in God, and of course the resurrection would be a strange and foolish belief. When you die, you die, and that's it. Belief in a resurrection is merely a made-up comfort for people who are afraid of death. Well, next, though, we see that those who reject the Christian faith, those who reject the Christian faith, they could the resurrection as a strange and foolish doctrine. The Stoics had a different view of things than the Epicureans did. The Stoics believed that reason governed both man and the world as a whole. Man was viewed as being integrated in with nature. Reason really became personified as a, as a god. They were basically pantheist. They would see their little g-god as inherent in everything. And individuals were exhorted to live in harmony with nature. Everything outside of reason was to be viewed as being indifferent, whether that was pleasure, whether it was pain, whether it was death. Very stern individualism, self-sufficient attitude. Clearly, this is an outright rejection of the Christian faith. I mean, their God was reason and nature. They were not even able to consider anything after death. They were not to give attention to that because that was a function of nature that really could not be controlled. So there was no place for the resurrection in their worldview either. They couldn't control death. They certainly could not control what happened after death. And as a result, the resurrection was a strange doctrine to them, a doctrine that had to be and should be rejected in their mind. Now, as a broader application here, of course, anyone who would reject the Christian faith, because the Christian faith is the one that has the doctrine of the resurrection, anyone who rejects the, the doctrine of the Christian faith is going to see the resurrection as being a strange and foolish doctrine because it doesn't fit with what they believe. One more category I want to look at here. Those who consider themselves progressive Christians often reject the atoning death and resurrection of Christ as strange and foolish doctrines. 
Now, I put progressive Christians in quotes because that's a phrase that they often use to describe themselves. These are people who would consider themselves to be Christians. They would believe in Jesus. They would often use passages from Scripture. They would oftentimes use Christian terms and ideas. Some would actively participate in particular churches. But they have become uncomfortable with traditional and biblical teachings. They are things, there are things that the Bible teaches that they want to move away from. They still want to be considered Christians, but there are things they consider as being significant problems. This is not something new. It's been around for a long time. Uh, mentioning Charles Spurgeon again. Of course, as I mentioned, he lived and ministered in the 1800s. Here's what he said about these problems that were, that were common in his day. He says, incarnate deity, a holy life, an atoning death, and a literal resurrection. Having heard these things now for nearly 19 centuries, they are just a little stale. And the cultivated mind hungers for a change from the old-fashioned manna. So they, and they use the term progressive in our day uh, because they see themselves as progressing beyond these basics of the Christian faith. They see themselves as wanting to be more consistent with scientific realities. Scientifically speaking, how can a man really become God? Or how can God actually become man? Scientifically speaking, how could someone who is dead rise from the dead? We're in a modern era, so we should not expect to believe such things any longer. Most in this category seem to believe that Jesus Christ was actually crucified, but they do not see his death as actually paying the price for sin. In other words, it was not an atoning death. Instead, Jesus was, really an, it was simply an example of what it is to sacrifice your life to stand for something that was right. I read a few articles from those who would put themselves, I think, in this category of progressive Christians about Easter recently. And at first, when you read the articles, it actually sounds like they really believe Jesus rose from the dead. But on closer review, as you look at it, what they're doing is using the Easter story as an inspiring story. Some don't believe it at all. Others would say they're not sure if Jesus really rose from the dead, but if it doesn't matter whether he did or not. And I mentioned to you before, this is what I was told in religion classes that I took at my Baptist college in the 70s, that whether Jesus rose again or not really was not, didn't matter. It could go either way. Instead, they, what they use is they use the resurrection as an inspiring story for a new beginning. One article I saw, and this is sad, but really quite ironic as well. The person was using Easter as a reminder of their personal new beginning and basically leaving the Christian faith behind. And they're using Easter as a new beginning for them. I mean, try to put that together. <laughs> it's just really heartbreaking when you see how widespread these beliefs really have become. If Jesus Christ did not pay the price for your sins on the cross, then you and I cannot be saved. If all he did was die as an example, nobody can be saved. 
if his, in other words, if his death was not an atoning death, salvation is impossible. And if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then you and I are still in our sins, no matter what we believe. If he did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sin. His resurrection was the final victory over sin and death. That's our hope for forgiveness, for salvation, for eternal life. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, we are all doomed again, no matter what we believe. If he didn't rise, there's no hope. Jesus was really and truly God in the flesh. Jesus really and truly died an atoning death and was buried. Jesus really and truly rose from the dead. Sadly, the view of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that Jesus' resurrection was a strange and foolish doctrine is still the view of many in our day. Now, there's one more thing we need to look at this morning. There are great gospel blessings inherent in that strange doctrine of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul spoke to the philosophers at the Areopagus, he addressed their idolatry by speaking of the one true God. He especially focused on the fact that God was the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. He made man and therefore could not be represented by an idol of gold, silver, or stone that man had made. We'll look at, again at a lot of the details of that message more next week. But when Paul comes to the end of his message, he calls the Athenians who were listening to him to repent of their sin and to believe. Look at verses 30 to 32. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. So their skepticism, their unbelief regarding the resurrection from the dead comes out again. It says they sneered, that could have to do with scoffing, mocking, that very idea of resurrection. But again, we know they were wrong. Praise God, Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. And Paul's closing words speak to us of one of the great blessings of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's this. Christ is the reigning and risen and reigning judge, but for Christians... He is also the risen and reigning Savior. Paul, the seed picker, is boldly calling these esteemed Athenians to repent of their unbelief. They had sinned by denying the one true God and worshiping idols instead. To reinforce the need for repentance, Paul says that the one true God has fixed the day in which he will judge the world. So they will not get away with their unbelief. They are going to be required to give an account of themselves on that day, on Judgment Day. The world, the whole inhabited earth, will be called to account on this day. And this will be a judgment, he says, that's characterized by perfect righteousness. So there will be no excuses for sin that will be acceptable. All sin, 
all unbelief will be judged in perfect righteousness. And then Paul adds that God will judge the world through a capital M man whom he has appointed. Of course, he is speaking here of Jesus Christ. God has ordained that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would carry out the final judgment in righteousness. And then to give validity to this, Paul says, God furnished proof of, of what he's just saying here when he raised Jesus from the dead. Now, J. Alexander sums this up uh, in, uh, in a quote that I want to share with you. Some challenging terms here, so I'll kind of have to kind of, kind of define it as, as, as we go. I had to look up some of these words myself. He says, the resurrection of Christ established his divine legation. Now, legation, that's the idea of his legal office as the promised Messiah. So the resurrection of Christ established his divine office as the Messiah. And the resurrection, the truth, the truth of all his doctrines and pretensions are also established. By pretensions, of course, his doctrines are all the, all the, all the truth, everything that he taught. His pretensions are the confirmations of the claims that he made. For example, the claim that he would be resurrected. So the resurrection of Christ establishes his divine office and the truth of his doctrines, his, uh, his, uh, his claims, among which was his claim to the judicial functions which are ascribed to him by Paul. In other words, to be, to be the judge, the final judge. So Jesus' resurrection was absolute confirmation that he was, in fact, the Son of God. He was and is the promised Messiah. It, con if, um, it confirms the claims he made that he would rise again after three days. And Paul says here that his resurrection is divine affirmation that he will, in fact, serve as the judge on the judgment day. This risen Christ is going to serve as the judge. So, that, so the resurrection of Christ means that Jesus Christ is the one that we will stand before as judge. But we need to realize this too. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the judge we stand before on the final day is also our Savior. As judge, he will pronounce that we are deserving of eternal condemnation because of our sin. But as Savior he will then pronounce every Christian as not guilty. Not because of any goodness on our part. Not because he is, not because, but because instead that he has paid the price for every sin that we have ever committed. We are pronounced not guilty because he has endured the wrath of God that we deserve. And his resurrection is proof positive that if Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, then we will be pronounced forgiven and ushered into the heavenly joy and glory that, that is promised for ours, but promised to us. Jesus Christ as our judge and as our Savior accomplishes that. And the resurrection affirms that reality. Strange doctrine, but a glorious doctrine. Finally, we see this. God the Father affirmed that Christ had fully accomplished, fully accomplished the salvation of his elect when he raised him from the dead. Most of the people who heard Paul's message turned away from it. But we see in verse 34 that there were some who believed. Well, how is it that Paul could offer a full salvation to anyone who repented of their sins and believed in Christ? How can he do that? 
It's because the resurrection is God's affirmation that Christ accomplished everything necessary for the full and eternal salvation of every sinner who believes. It was because of Jesus' perfectly righteous life that he was able to give himself as a perfectly holy sacrifice for sinners. It's because he endured the wrath of God on the cross that every sinner who believes would be counted as not guilty before God and delivered from eternal condemnation. It's because Jesus of, of his perfectly righteous life that every sinner who believes in Christ will be counted perfectly righteous before God. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection that all who believe in him are absolutely certain that they too will be raised to everlasting life. Jesus is the first fruits. Everyone who believes is part of that fruitful harvest. Our judge is our savior, and he accomplished a full salvation. So Paul could offer all of that to every sinner that he spoke to, including those in Athens. Praise God, some of them believed. That same salvation, of course, is the salvation that's available to us too. And we know that, again, because Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Lord, we do thank you very much, again, for your word. I thank you that the same truths, resurrection truth, that Paul was speaking to people who rejected him, who rejected his message, those same truths, though, are just as applicable to us today as they were to them back then. There was a handful of people who believed. There have been multiplied millions of people who have believed since then and that same resurrected Christ. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. I thank you that our Savior is truly the Son of God who took on human flesh, who lived a righteous life, who died a sacrificial death as our substitute, who endured the condemnation that we deserve, and who was triumphantly raised from the dead as absolute confirmation of all those things. Thank you that that confirms every aspect of our salvation, that work that you have begun in us and our lives individually. Because you're the resurrected Savior, we are confident that it will be completed. Thank you for what you have done and are doing in our lives. Help us to continue to grow in our appreciation of what you have accomplished for us as our resurrected Savior and our King. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, then I would urge you to do that. What a great day to put your faith in Christ would be Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I do fall short. And I know that like Paul told these men 2,000 years ago, I'm going to have to stand before God to give an account of my life. And I know that won't be a pretty thing. But I thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. Therefore, he's not only my judge, but I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment to Christ, you can make a note in your tear-off or those who are watching uh, online can.